Okay. Well, we're in, uh, we're in week five of our value series. We've been sneaking along looking at different values uh, that we feel underpin life here at Freeway that help us know Jesus and then help us make him known. This week we're looking at the value of selfless service. Uh, it's, a, it's a type of service in which we are serving each other that like the rest of our values that we've been looking at is qualified by our own encountering of Jesus, our own uh, uh, life with Jesus. And we serve each other like this because we have first been served by Jesus. That's the, that's the catchphrase, that's the principle under which selfless service uh, operates, if you like. Serving is a pretty universal uh, thing, really, though it's not exclusive uh, to the church. But what we think is that in the Christian faith, or what we know is that the Christian faith has for us this, this wonderful blend of uh, an example, a motive, and also an enabling. It's not something we do. It's not service. It's not something we do, but it's, it's something we become. It's, it's, it's within our, in our DNA. And it allows us because it is who we are, and because it's not based in ourselves, but based in our own encounter with Christ, it, it, en- it enables us to be consistent. It enables us to be free and not ultimately uh, you know, self-deflated by our service, where we end up discouraged by it or angry or bitter because we're not serving to gain approval from this space. Or we're not serving to gain recognition or, or to find value. We're serving because... We've been served. And not just because we've been served in an event by Jesus, but we are continually being served by Jesus in our lives. And that allows us to be selfless in our service. Uh, It allows us to be abnormally selfless in our service. Uh, Matt Chandler has a book called Creature of the Word, and and in it, in um, in his chapter on service, he mentions just briefly the story of David Kinez. I think that's how you pronounce his last name. He was a retired U.S. Marine. He'd been in the Marine Corps for 23 years, active service. And uh, he was now, though, he'd moved out of the Marines and he was working as a senior uh, director or accountant in, uh, in a firm, uh, Deloitte Touch. There are, um, is that it? Deloitte? Awesome. This is what you've got a pastor who's linguistically challenged. Awesome. That's where he was working. He's no player. He's up there. Bit of little, I like the feedback and the help there. It's great. On the 11th of September, him, him and the rest of his team were, were watching. September 11, 2001. Along with the rest of the world, were watching the tragic and horrific events that unfolded around, around September 11. And as images and reports started to flood in about the attack on these towers, about these planes flying into these towers and hitting these towers, and that thousands and thousands of people were going to be trapped in these burning towers, David informed his boss that he would be gone for a little while. He jumped in his car, which is ironically a Porsche 911. He went to his barber and he asked for a marine haircut, high back and sides, he, took off his, he went home and he took off his executive suit and exchanged them for marine fatigues. 
Even though no longer a Marine, he always kept two pairs of Marine fatigues uh, pressed and starched in his cupboard. He said, kind of a weird thing to do, he said in an interview, but, you know, they come in handy from time to time, like when I want to go through blockades and things. He then stopped at his storage facility where he kept all his recovery equipment, uh, repelling ropes, knives and things. Uh, this is the kind of guy who uh, you don't want to date his daughter. Um, Dave went to his church then and he asked his senior pastor to be praying for him and, and that the church would be praying for him because he was heading to, uh, heading to the, the, the zone and that he would be able to get there and find survivors. He then lowered the top of his Porsche 911 so the authorities could just look in and see for quick checking, dressed in his marine fatigues, who his gear, and so that he could just get quickly uh, to, the, to ground zero and, and begin helping he travelled 156 kilometres uh, from Connecticut to New York at speeds of up to 120 miles an hour. If you own a Porsche 911, you might as well give it a little rip. Dressed as a Marine, dressed in Marine fatigues, David was able to move freely through the barricades, uh, through all the police and into Ground Zero where he spent the next eight days looking for survivors amongst the twisted and entangled wreckage of the two buildings that had come that were coming down by now. However, it was in the first hours uh, where most people were moving away from the scene and where police and fire authorities were telling their, their servicemen to get out because it was too dangerous that he bumped into another Marine who had seen the drama going down, Sergeant Jason Thomas, and he likewise had gone home, put on his Marine fatigues, uh, he was dropping his daughter off at his mother's house and saw it on the news and then raced home, put his marine fatigues on and now the two of them were climbing amongst and through the shifting rubble looking for survivors. Yelling out, US Marines, if you can hear us, tap or yell. Pausing regularly every now and again to listen. After about an hour of searching, David heard the sound of some tapping and they paused and they followed it back to where they were he said uh, where are you you know yell louder we're, we're here we're coming towards you they followed the voice and they found survivors 18 and 19 of the 20 survivors that would be pulled from the rubble there were two port authority police officers will Jamino and sergeant john mccluggan he's uh, irish or something so i've got to say his name like that they were buried 20 feet into the rubble Carnes and Thomas were outsiders to this rescue operation. They came in to, to rescue, to serve people who they didn't know and who would never know them. They were not police and they were not fireys, so very little was made of their presence. In fact, so little was known about Thomas, uh, who is a six foot two uh, African American, that when they made the movie uh, World Trade Center, he was portrayed by a, a five foot ten little white dude. And it was only when the movie was made that he realised, hey, that's, that's me they're portraying. And he came forward, a little bit embarrassing for the, for the people who made the movie. But had, but had David Carnes not exchanged his executive suit for battle fatigues to seek and to save people who were just hopelessly lost without any way of, of getting out of that rubble, this story would not exist. Carnes was described by one interviewer, a 60 Minutes interviewer, I think it was, who said he's slightly abnormal 
abnormally selfless. The story of David Carnes exchanging his executive suit for marine fatigues portrays for us a great image of selfless service towards others. In the same way, but in an infinitely greater degree, God in the person of Jesus took off his royal robes and dressed as one of us. He added humanity to his divinity in order to step into the rubble and the mess of our own ground zero from which we have no hope of escaping or saving ourselves. We are are buried, we are entwined, we are entangled within the entanglements of sin which cause all manner of dysfunctionality, all manner of disorder in our lives, a destruction between ourselves and God, between ourselves and each other. The outworking of all of this is death across all lines of experience. We are trapped in it. We are helpless to serve ourselves in it, to get ourselves out of it, to rescue ourselves. In the person of Jesus, God lays aside his glory to come and to serve us in a way that we cannot serve ourselves, to rescue us from death that sin brings, that sin brings into this life and into the next, but then to continue to transform us into a new life that is enabled by grace, for us ourselves to become like Jesus, to become those who would go and and serve others. Jesus didn't just exchange a set of clothes, he exchanged positions before God. The righteous for the unrighteous, Peter explains in 1 Peter 3.18. The righteous for the unrighteous, as Paul explains to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5, a sinless person for sinners. A great exchange, the derobing of glory for the robing of shame. Jesus serves us at our deepest need by dealing with the penalty and the effects of sin on our lives. The message and the effect of the cross is that Jesus has died for our sin, resulting, uh, releasing us from the penalty of death, releasing us from the penalty of the grip of sin. And opening up for us a new life, a renewed life in relationship with God. A symptom of which is that we then behave, become like our rescuer. Remember first week we looked at that. We become like the one who rescues us. And in that we become servants like the one who served us. Paul writes it up like this in Philippians. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, corporate language, which is yours in Christ. So have this mind, have this similar mindset towards each other, which is yours because you're in Christ, which is like the mind of Christ's. Who, through, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, uh, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Just shame for us. But listen to what God does to this humbled servant therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed him 
and bestowed on him a name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. The one who became a servant for us will one day be recognized as Lord of all. Jesus, though entitled to enjoy the praise and the worship of the entire uh, created order. We've been talking, Sandy mentioned it, we talked about how creation sings to the glory of God. It was singing to the glory of Jesus and, and angels and things just like, you're awesome. Dresses himself in flesh, enters into our experience of life that he might serve us at our deepest needs. Dealing with our sin, dealing with the activity of rebellion towards God that has God's deserving and well-considered sentence of death on it. And Jesus comes and derobes himself and comes into our place and takes our robes of shame to serve us. When this truth, when this historic event with spiritual significance penetrates your heart, that God served you by becoming an outcast, by becoming shame, by becoming wretched, a thing that humanity would despise, a thing that humanity would mock, a thing that humanity would kill, in order that you would not feel shame or fear of exile, that you would not taste the bitter uh, wound of, of, of shame, the weight of guilt or the sting of death, when our hearts realize that. We realize we have been served in a way that changes everything. Even our standing before God. From a rebel to a worshiper. Our hearts are transformed by this. With an experience of grace. Undeserved rescue that fuels how we now see each other. Which fuels how we now move toward each other. It becomes the DNA of life in the church. Selfless service. When Jesus was heading towards the cross, he's on the road. Uh, we're in Matthew 20, 25 to 28. And his disciples were kind of jostling at this crazy. He's just talked about how he's going to go and, and give his life and die. And now his disciples are jostling for positions of power in his team. With power comes the expectation of being served. People are going to look up to him. People are going to be like, hey, where are you? We're the big team in town. He pulls them aside and he says... You're about to see in very graphic terms the kind of power that people who align themselves with me will exercise. They use it to serve each other at a profoundly, abnormally, selfless level. The Son of Man, he says, speaking of himself, he is the Son of Man and he's applying for them a well-known imagery that comes out of Daniel 7 of this mysterious figure who, who, who has universal power, who has universal authority given to him, to whom all languages and whom all nations will give their service to him in an everlasting kingdom. He says, that's me, I'm that dude. I have come, though, into human history not at this point to exercise that power and authority in the same way that the broken systems of the world exercise power. But I have come to serve humanity. I'm not looking to be served. I'm come to serve them in a way that they cannot serve themselves. My service I put forward to you as a ransom. One who gives of himself 
alluding to the extent of his service to us, being even unto someone who would take our place in death. To be served by the Son of Man, however, is not a static event. It's, it's, it's effective. It transforms. It, it, it's a continuing encounter with grace that makes us into servants with the same kind of nature. We serve because we have been served like that. And we are continuing to be served and will be forever lovingly and selflessly served by Jesus. The essence of the Christian faith is not that we serve God, but rather that God has served us. And that's the motive behind selfless service. There's this passage in Acts, Acts 17, where, where, where Paul gets down to the bottom and he goes, as if God needs the service of humanity. He's not served. He doesn't need to, he's self-sufficient, but incredibly, he serves us. Well, no moment in Jesus' ministry speaks to us more clearly about being connected, about what being connected to Jesus means. Selfless service. Uh, in a way in which we move toward each other. No, no imagery gives us a clearer picture of this than the washing of Jesus. Jesus washing the feet of the disciples, which we had read to us this morning from John's Gospel. Here Jesus gives us this graphic example of the type of relational environment that the church should be. It should be one where we serve each other, where the leaders also serve the greatest, the leaders serve the so-called insignificant members of the community in a way that lets them know that they are kings and queens amongst us. That they are just as dignified and important as a CEO to a street kid, as we saw in the, in the Philippian church. John sets the scene here with this moment. Two great moments of salvation are kind of cast over this moment. One is a past moment of salvation and one is yet to be a future moment of salvation. It's the Passover, which celebrates... The salvation and deliverance of the people of God out of slavery uh, in, in Egypt. And it's also the hour. The hour has come. A phrase that captures the death and resurrection of Jesus through which God will deliver all people out of slavery and out of sin. The God who served Israel in Egypt is now about in, to, in greater measure, serve all nations, all people. John lets us know that the motives behind this service, behind what Jesus is about to do, is unconditional, extravagant, enduring love. Not generalized love, not Hollywood love, intentional love. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. There is an intentional ambiguity in this phrase, to the end. Jesus uh, loved his disciples, even though they exhibited the brokenness of this world, uh, to the very end, as in right up to the end of his ministry. He loved them with his last breath. They drove him crazy. 
They just, you know, not getting it straight away and all this kind of stuff. But he kept coming. He just loved them, loved them to the very end. It's an enduring love that drives selfish, selfless service. You can't just say, hey, how many times I've got to love this brother or sister who, who just, just drives me nuts? You, you love to the end. There is no time limit on it. No amount of crazy to stop it. And Jesus loved them in spite of their constant sinful tendencies. It's the kind of people he's dealing with to the very end of love itself. As in he loved them to the uttermost extent of love. Love expressed in its highest intensity. Love that is unconditional. Love that is not seeking or demanding uh, some kind of reciprocation towards it. Love that is not motivated by need. Selfless service pours out of radical love. For Jesus, service is an extension and the practical evidence of love. If you love someone, you have no problem serving them. Secondly, selfless service is not preferential or self-seeking. It doesn't discriminate. It's not based on merit or perceived worth. It doesn't seek promotion or, or, or self or anything like that. In our story, Jesus washes all the feet in that room. Even the feet of Judas are washed, who he knows was about to betray him. He washes Peter's feet. Even though his heart is filled with pride, self-deprecating righteousness. Both Judas and Peter have issues with how, with how salvation and power mix, with how salvation and power are demonstrated. Neither of them conceive of the idea of laying aside your power will bring about salvation. To lay aside power is how we serve. But both will encounter grace in this lesson. But listen. One is unmoved and the other is outraged. But that outrage will give way to affection and the indifference of Judas will lead to his death. If we are unmoved by Jesus, then we're in a lot of trouble. You are in a bad space. If you are unmoved by Jesus. But if Jesus disrupts you, if Jesus causes you to be outraged or challenges you, you're in a good space. Stay in that lane. Stay in that conversation until he melts your heart with affection. Life with Jesus begins with him serving us. Not us doing something impressive or noble. Life with Jesus begins with understanding that we need a saviour who would demonstrate his power and love through a cross. We need someone who would selflessly deal with our selfishness. Thirdly, And I think this is perhaps, I reckon this is the most powerful verse in the passage. And we read it in verse 3. Jesus has a clear picture of who he is. He is the Son of Man to whom all creation owes its worship and obedience. 
and all things. The Father has, he, knowing that the Father has given him all things into his hands. He is, the, the, well, he is king of the universe. Everybody should be living under his authority. He's the Son of Man to whom all creation owes its worship and obedience. All things are in operation at His discretion. Sovereign, unparalleled King of creation. It's a recognition of who He is and where He's come from. Now, the one who exchanged the glory of heaven in which this reality is acknowledged has now exchanged that glory for human flesh in which he's going to be constantly rejected, constantly denied. Now that person, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, knowing who he is, now derobes even further. Takes off his rabbi's clothes and swaps them for the, for the robes of a servant, a menial servant. And he washes the feet of his disciples. A job considered so demeaning, it is set aside for the most insignificant servants of the house. And even some Jews felt it so demeaning that they wouldn't even let their Jewish slaves do it. They'd give it to crazy little pagans. But as it is with everything that Jesus does, he's not diminished by his contact or his engagement with the unclean or the untouchable with the mess and the rubble of our lives. But rather, he restores and he brings healing and he redeems and he transforms. Trust me. Trust me. There is nothing in your lives. There is nothing in any life in this room this morning that is too putrid, too shameful, too off-the-chain arrogant, that Jesus won't touch it, that Jesus won't stoop down into your life and get a hold of it and expose it and then heal it. You don't come into your life to expose your wretchedness, to, to crush and shame you. He says, hey, we've got to deal with this. This is between you and me. We've got, we've got to fix this. And then when we agree that that needs fixing, he begins to heal and restore and wash and clean. Jesus is not merely doing a nice turn here, washing these feet. He's turning culture and power. He's turning even how we understand our hearts on their heads. He's creating a new way of being for us. Jesus' day wasn't dissimilar to ours when it comes to social power structures. The more gifted you were, the more wealth you had, the less you did. The more people were expected to serve you, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands. Now he stoops and now he serves. Complete reversal of culture. It's the craziest thing. The moment you can afford everything, people start just giving you stuff. They clamor around you to serve you. I was at the basketball last night and watching, watching kids just run up to the, the, you know, the NBL players just wanting to be around them. They'd give them their car if they could just to get a photo. Why is that? Because our culture is owned by the powerful and the influential and they lord it over the less powerful. And the less powerful want to be around them to try, and, to try and get, to try and receive a little bit of it. However, Jesus wasn't into this kind of power trip. He knew who and what he was. And he had come to establish a new ways of relating to each other. Humanity that exhibits its confidence through selfless service. Like Jesus 
didn't lose anything about himself when he, when, he, when he stooped down to wash those feet. When you know who you are, you are free to serve in radically abnormal ways. When you know your life is being served by the king of the universe, you don't ask questions. Like, how will I look by doing this? What will it cost? You simply ask, how and where can I serve? Rather than expecting someone to come and serve us, we are motivated to serve others because we have first been served. So as Jesus, our Savior, empties himself of his authority and serves us, so we are to empty ourselves of any entitlement that we think we might be owed and to move and to serve others. Jesus lets his disciples know that this outrageous behavior is to be the standard by which they will now live. If he is their teacher and Lord, they should have no problem serving in such a way. Who are they to think of themselves as being so special, so privileged that they, can get, that they can't themselves go and get their hands dirty serving others? Selfless service is the mark of all of Jesus' followers. From the apostles sitting in that room there to you and I sitting around these tables today. If you've encountered Jesus in this kind of a way, in which he exposes the wreckage of your life and, he challenged, and you are challenged by that to agree that you need to be served by God. You know, Peter's like, I'm not having you serve me. I should wash your feet. And Jesus said, don't work like that. It begins with me serving you. And if you're too proud, this relationship isn't going to work. That you need to be served by God to bring about effective change in your heart that lets Jesus in to heal, restore, make good all that sin has destroyed, then Jesus' service of us is not just a historic event contained in a book. It's a transformative encounter in our hearts that frees us to become abnormally, sacrificially uh, serving in our lives. Selfless service then, is in the DNA. Once our lives are joined to Christ, we become servers. We, we serve because we've first been served. Hey, I don't know if you've noticed, but I haven't mentioned one thing about doing this morning. I haven't said go and do something somewhere. Because this is more about who you are, how you be. And that's far more important before you put one foot into ministry, before you do one thing in your life. Have you been served first by God? Because anything you do outside of that is ash and dust.